in your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms. We are continuing our sermon series, Scale the Mountain, Worshiping God from the Songs of His People. And this morning we'll be in Psalm 110. Now, if you uh, hang out with me for any length of time, uh, you will uh, definitely have an opportunity to make fun of me. But the other thing that you might hear is me say this phrase. Well, I was listening to a podcast and uh, I really love podcasts. Uh, this is why I know nothing about pop music, because I never listen to the radio, because uh, I just listen to podcasts. And so recently, I was listening to a podcast, and it was uh, talking about the rise of this new industry called life coaching. Uh, and it's really on the rise uh, massively, and was kind of talking through uh, maybe a little bit of a Venn diagram of life coaching and uh, social media influencer and pyramid scheme runner. Uh, and that, that actually might not be a Venn diagram with three circles, but might just be one uh, in a lot of instances. Uh, not the entire life coaching industry is like that, but those that are the most popular in that space kind of function in those ways. And it's really interesting because... Why do we give them any authority? Why is a social media influencer a thing? How does that have authority in our life? And one of the things that this podcast was exploring was this, uh, the, the person running it was actually pursuing getting a coach as part of the podcast, but was actually even talking through their own pain and brokenness over the last few years, post-COVID, and was saying, I don't really believe in this thing, but if it works... I don't care, because I'm really broken and sad. And I think the reality of it becoming such a popular thing is because we're all kind of struggling through, actually thinking, man, if we could just get back to the way things used to be, and we're not sure that we can, and so we need help from someone. We need some sort of authority. And when we get desperate, we're willing to go to any authority even if it's not an authority that should be trusted. Well, I think this is one of the reasons that Jesus, in all of his interactions, in the way that he teaches, uh, certainly he is interacting with desperate people all the time, but he also tries to declare himself as an authority over against the religious leaders of his day. And there are so many interactions in which there is this back and forth about why Jesus possesses an authority that we should listen to. And I want us to consider that question today. Why does Jesus possess an authority that we should listen to? And can we listen to it instead of any other authority for our deepest, most painful experiences? So this interaction comes for Jesus in the book of Mark, starting in uh, in chapter 12, starting in verse 35. It says, Later, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, Why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? So, often what Jesus is doing is he is taking an assumption, a norm that existed in this culture uh, among people and actually asking a question, getting you to think a little bit more. So, The Messiah, this coming promised one who would redeem the world, is something that the people of God were waiting for. And they rightly discerned from the scriptures that this would come of the line of David. He would be one of David's sons. 
But Jesus points out another thing. He says, For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Well, Jesus does a couple of things here that are really important for us. First of all, he gives us a pretty good understanding of how he thought about the Bible. He says that David wrote a psalm. He quotes then from Psalm 110, right? The psalm that we're going to be in this morning. And says that he did so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That Jesus says, this thing that we all run to, the scriptures, is from God himself. And also, David wrote it. And he asked this question. He says, okay, so if David speaks in this way, the Lord said to my Lord, well then, how, is David call, uh, how does David call this Messiah my Lord? How can the Messiah be his son? So, he is not actually questioning whether or not the Messiah would come from the line of David. What he's asking is, what kind of Messiah are we waiting for? Is this just a, another king in the line of David? Or is this something more? And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Psalm 110, which is one of the most important psalms in the scriptures. This question is a big deal question for us understanding what it is that God is doing in the world. Now, as we've been walking through this sermon series, we've been using this acronym SCALE uh, that Hunter came up with uh, over the summer, and uh, super thankful for that. I think it's been really helpful for us to have some tools to walk through the scriptures together, to walk through the Psalms together. So the S stands for story, the C for Christ, the A for affections, or our, our will, mind, and emotions moving in a direction towards the Lord, L stands for love, our love of God, love of neighbor, and love of God's law. And E stands for exaltation or worship. Now, today, we're really going to focus in on Christ. Because Psalm 110 is one of the most important Christ psalms. One of the most important messianic psalms looking forward. It is quoted so much in the New Testament in different places. And so we're going to try and understand what this is. Now, Christ, in our scale, we've been trying to show you that all of the Psalms point to Christ. And yet there are some that are uh, super important for New Testament theology about Jesus, who he is, and what he does. So, Psalm 110. A Psalm of David. So this is really important. It's a Psalm that David has written. This is really important because it helps us understand what exactly is happening. And Jesus affirms that this is written by David. And the fact that it's written by David is really important. Uh, actually, uh, a lot of critical scholars today would say that this is written by an attendant about David. So it's not really about some exalted Messiah. It's about David, which doesn't really fit with the, uh, the way in which the Hebrew text works in terms of attributing this to David. Also, the fact that all of the people of God throughout history have attributed it to David. And then Jesus attributed it to David. So David wrote it, right? <laughs> that's the, that's the, the short answer is that David wrote it. Because we don't actually know better than people in the past <laughs> uh, just because we're modern folks. That's not how it works. Uh, but this is a psalm of David. And this is really important because David is the king. He is the highest authority. 
He is ruler. This is not, uh, again, we have to transport our minds from our context uh, to the ancient Near East, in which this is not like, well, everyone got together and elected a leader, and we picked David, and if we don't like him, we can elect a new leader later. No, he's the king. What he says goes. He has authority. So, David says this, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. This is the first place in Psalm 110 where David quotes the Lord. And the distinction here, um, and, and I don't know if we've talked about this before. Uh, oh, I get to actually underline something here. Awesome. Okay. Whoop. So, this here, see how this is all caps, and this here is not? When it's all caps in your English translation, this is Yahweh, the name of God. This is the way in which our English translation brings over. This is not simply we are speaking about God in general. We are speaking about the name that God gave to the people of Israel that is, this is my name. This is who you should call me, right? And so... This word, Lord, here means Lord, Master, uh, uh, one with authority over me, right? That kind of Lord, right? And so the distinction here is that this is Yahweh speaking, but it's to David's Lord. Well, who is that? Isn't David's Lord? Who's above the king of Israel, the king of God's people? Just God himself, right? We're already seeing a little bit of the tension of what this passage is trying to show us. So, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies. When you go to war, your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when, your, when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their lands with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth. But he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. All right, so this is what we call an exaltation psalm. It's a, it's a psalm that is exalting. It's a royal psalm about the kingdom. It's very similar to a psalm that Hunter preached through over the summer, which is Psalm 2. There's actually a ton of parallels between Psalm 2, which is this, uh, this royal psalm looking to the son of David. And this one kind of answers some of the questions that Psalm 2 raises uh, and, and goes a little further in this. Now, Jesus said that this Lord of David's is the Messiah. Well, who is that? Well, throughout the New Testament, this psalm is attributed to being about Jesus. In Acts 2, Peter says this. So Acts 2, right? This is Peter's first sermon after Pentecost. Jesus has been risen from the dead. He has ascended into heaven. The Spirit has come. And all of the apostles begin speaking in tongues. And everyone's like, what is happening? It's a wild scene. And then Peter stands up and speaks 
to the crowd. He says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and we are all witnesses of this. Now he is exalted to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand, right? That's exactly what Psalm 110 said. And the Father, as he had promised, gave him the Holy Spirit to pour out upon us just as you see and hear today. For David himself never ascended into heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. So let everyone in Israel know for certain that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, to be both Lord and Messiah. What Peter is saying is, if I look at this text and I understand what I've witnessed, what I've seen in walking with Jesus, in seeing him teach, and then in watching him go to a cross, and then in seeing him. Alive. And then in gathering together and seeing him ascend into heaven. And then in having the Spirit be poured out upon us. It's why Peter is so incredibly bold. Remember, this is the same Peter who just a few weeks previous, when Jesus was being crucified, denied that he even knew him. Now to the same exact crowd of people, he is saying... You crucified the Messiah. He has this incredible boldness. Why would he have this incredible boldness? Because he witnessed exactly what this psalm promised. The Messiah has come. This Messiah, this anointed one. So the question then is, okay, if Psalm 110 is pointing to the Messiah and the New Testament says this is Jesus, we are declaring that right? And we as the church declare that Jesus is the Messiah. My question for us this morning is, why should we follow him? Why should we submit our lives to him? And not just follow him in the sense of saying like, yes, I'm a Christian. I mean, we're at church, dude. What crowd do you think you're talking to? Of course we follow Jesus. Yes, but functionally, who do we give authority to in our life? Who do we look to when life is hard? Where do we run when we're desperate and depressed? That's the question for us this morning. And why is Jesus the place that we should go? So I want to show you a few things about Psalm 110. So uh, I think, where are we at here? Nope, this is not where I wanted to be. Oh, this is it. All right. So I want to show you a few things about Psalm 110. Because this Messiah, this anointed one, this Lord, is our one true priest king. He's our priest king. So I'm going to point out for you a few things that this text is showing us about Jesus being a pr- both priest and king. Okay? So, first... Let's look at some references here to king. Okay, so we've got place of honor at my right hand, right? We've got enemies made a footstool under your feet. He will extend your powerful kingdom. You will rule over. You will go to war, right? Uh, And you are... 
I don't know if I can move this. Can I move this? Oh, look at that. Your strength. Whoa, that's not what I wanted to do. Changing colors on me. All right. Your strength will be renewed, right? The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings. He will punish the nations, right? There's this uh, very dark, warlike language, land with corpses, right? Shatter heads. This is all king language, right? This is a kingdom and a king, right? Israel has categories for a king. We've had kings. We know what that is. And yet, this text combines king with priest. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom. Uh, your people will serve you willingly when you go to war. But then it says you are arrayed in holy garments, something a priest would wear. And then he actually says you are a priest forever. He does all this kingly thing, all this kingly stuff, and then he also is functioning as a priest. And that's where we get to this really fun name to say. Melchizedek. This is where king and priest come together. What does that mean? Who is this character, Melchizedek? Right? Well, let's find out. In Genesis 14, so Melchizedek only shows up in a couple of places in Scripture, and most of them are referring to him, not actually him as a character, right? He shows up in one place as a character, and it's in Genesis 14. So Abram, right, is commanded by God to leave his country and to go to the place that God will show him. This is the father of the people of Israel. He's the patriarch of Israel. And on his way uh, from a battle, he returns... Uh, and this is what happens. After Abram returned from his victory over, uh, I'm not even going to try and say that name, and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and a priest of God Most High, right? He's king of Salem, which is actually Jerusalem. And a priest of God Most High brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek, whoop, sorry, I jumped ahead. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had received. So what does that mean? Like what is happening here? Well, the author to the book of Hebrews gives us a little bit of insight as to what this situation actually means. So in Hebrews chapter 7, it says this, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God most high. When Abraham was returning home after winning a great battle against the kings, Melchizedek met him and blessed him. Then Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. The name Melchizedek means king of justice and king of Salem means king of peace. There is no record of his father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. What happens 
to uh, the author of Hebrews is looking at this character of Melchizedek and saying, he kind of comes out of nowhere. We don't know where he came from. Scriptures don't actually talk about where he came from, which is actually, right, when you read the Old Testament, there's all these genealogies. It's really important to know where he came from. Came from nowhere. We actually don't know what happened to him after he met Abraham. He totally disappears from the record. And the author to the book of Hebrews says, this is a picture of Jesus who has no beginning and no end. And then the author to the book of Hebrews goes on to say in the verses following this that what's really significant here is that Abraham, who is the patriarch of Israel, pays a tithe to Melchizedek. You pay a tithe to someone who is greater than you as a king. Abraham is the patriarch of God's people and he pays a tithe to this priest king who we have no record of anywhere. And what the author of the book of Hebrews is doing is saying, Jesus has a priesthood that is totally different than the priests of Israel. The priestly line of Israel comes through one of uh, Israel's sons, Levi. And what Hebrews argues is that Levi actually pays tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham, right? Because Levi eventually is a descendant of Abraham, right? Remember, descendants is actually a really, really important concept in the ancient Near East. And so the fact that Melchizedek doesn't have any record points to this eternal nature of Jesus. And the fact that Abraham pays tithes to him means that the priesthood of Israel is subservient to the priesthood of Melchizedek. So, track with me, all right? I don't want to lose anybody. We're, we're, we're heading somewhere here, right? So it's not just that Jesus is a priest. Not just any priest. He's the priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's a different kind of priest. He's a king priest. Melchizedek was king of Salem, that is Jerusalem. He is a king and a priest. Hebrews earlier quotes this same psalm about the Son of God, Jesus, being greater than angels and not just an earthly king, but a heavenly king with an eternal kingdom by saying this, And God never said to any of the angels, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. You see, the author to the book of Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is a king like no other king. And he's a priest like no other priest. And when you combine those two things, he's a Messiah, an anointed one, a Savior like no other Savior. Now why is this important? Why is it important that we have a priest king? Well, the reality is, a priest king is exactly what we need. As a king, he can offer protection, guidance, power, a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of love. That sounds great. Let's get on board. But what if I'm hurting and broken and sinful? But he's a priest. He offers forgiveness and mercy and healing that comes from this new kind of covenant. This priest king is the one that we need. 
He's the place to which we can go with all of our pain, all of our brokenness, all of our lives, all of our questions. So what do we do in light of this? Well, Peter tells us in his speech, he says, Peter's words pierced their hearts and they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you, to your children, and to all those who are far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. If you encounter this priest king Jesus, our response is to repent of our sins and trust in him. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, not sure what it means to follow Jesus, you're figuring that out, you have questions, doubts, I want to offer to you that Jesus is the place for your questions and doubts. He's the place that you can run to in your brokenness and in your pain. He has all of the resources to answer you, to be near to you, to come close, because He is the true priest king who offers healing, forgiveness, and grace, and who also ushers you into a new kind of kingdom, a kingdom of love. This is available for anyone. Right, what did Peter say? It's to you, Israel, to your children, and to all who are far off. That's all of us, Gentiles. Those who are outside of the people of God, we get to come in to this promised one. This one that Psalm 110 was pointing to, that all of Israel was looking forward to, is a Savior of the whole world. We get to come in. This is for us. Now, if you are trusting in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, what does this mean for us? What does it mean that we have this kind of Savior. Well, Hebrews chapter 10. So, so the, the whole book of Hebrews, some people believe that Hebrews is uh, it, it's a letter, but it also functions kind of like a sermon manuscript. Like if we just discovered a, an early church sermon manuscript, like it is flowing in an argument to get you to a place of trusting in Jesus. And particularly in trusting in Jesus over and against all of the systems of law and priesthood that Israel offered. Looking to Jesus instead. So Hebrews chapter 10 says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most, most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting Him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean. And our bodies have been washed with pure water. This reality means that we can live into this kingdom. Now, here's the tension point, right? This is true. And yet we don't fully experience it. Right? We talk often here about this already and not yet tension. 
Jesus has already ascended. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will put all your enemies under your feet. And yet all of his enemies aren't yet under his feet. We live in this tension where he has already ascended. He has the power. The kingdom is his. And we are a part of it. And yet we still live in a broken world. Right? The, the old world, the old way of uh, life is falling away. And the new has already come, but we live in the overlap of the old going away and the new already having come. Which means we live in tension. We live in that tension. And in that tension, we need to live by and cling to Jesus, the priest king. One of the things that this psalm means for us is if what I have said to you, if you agree with what I said, right? The argument that I've made is that Jesus is the Messiah that was pointed to in Psalm 110. He actually fulfills this, that he's our true priest, king, and savior. If you agree with that, then what the author of Hebrews says is true for you. Go boldly into the throne room. So this is where I say, it's not just that we say we follow Jesus. Functionally, we need to follow Jesus. Do we go to the throne room often boldly? Or do we sometimes come kind of hiding? We want to be in the back, just to make sure God knows we're here, but we're not sure we want to go close to him because we don't feel worthy. We don't feel like we really can go. You see, if Jesus is our true priest king, then what we say about believing in justification and being made right with God by faith, if what we say about the imputed righteousness of Christ, that we get Jesus' perfect record credited to us, when we believe in Christ? Do we really believe that? Because if we really believe that, that you are totally forgiven because your priest king has done it all for you of all sin, past, present, and future, and you are clothed not with your good deeds or moral purity, but with Jesus's, this, do we really believe this? If so, then we can go boldly into the throne room because our God has welcomed us. We can go boldly to God with all of our pain, all of our turmoil, all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our sadness, all of our anger, all of who we are because Jesus has done it all already. This is the thing that the author to the book of Hebrews is trying to get us to see. This priest king is the one you need. He's the one you need. He makes this argument over and over again. He doesn't die like the other priests do because he died and rose again to live forever. He doesn't sacrifice for his own sin because he has no sin. Right? The priest under the old system had to go in and sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the sin of the people. We have a priest king who doesn't sacrifice for his own sin because he has no sin. He is one who can really and truly save. Hebrews 10 in another place says, Under the old covenant, the priest stands and ministers before the altar day after day, offering the same sacrifices again and again, which can never take away sins. 
It's kind of the point, right? If you have to sacrifice over and over and over again, did it really work? Maybe it was a pointer to something else. Maybe the whole point of all of the the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a placeholder for something greater that was coming. Maybe the Psalms are pointing to this one who will come and finally crush the serpent. But our high priest offered himself to God as a single sacrifice for sins, good for all time. Then he sat down at the, right, at the place of honor at God's right hand. Again, this, this psalm is quoted again, right? Sat down at the place of honor, God, God's right hand. There he waits until his enemies are humbled and made a footstool under his feet. For by that one offering, he forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Do we live like we believe that? Or do we actually try to reverse this? This who are being made holy, where we say, well, when we're more holy, then we'll go to Jesus. But what does it say? He, by that one offering, forever made perfect those who are being made holy. Now, what, it doesn't say how holy, does it? It doesn't give a description of how holy you have to be to have this true of you. The whole argument of the book of Hebrews is if you believe in Jesus, you are being made holy. That means in God's eyes, you are already made perfect. Already made perfect. We often hide in shame, not recognizing that our priest king sits at God's right hand. You know the idea that the priest king sitting at God's right hand is two things? One, he has authority. He's at God's right hand. And two, he's sitting. He doesn't have to sacrifice anymore. His work of redeeming you is totally done. He did it one time. And you who are being made holy in this really up and down kind of way, right? Our sanctification, we actually think being made holy looks like this. Like, woo, we're going up. But it really looks like this. Like down here and then up here, right? It's an upward trajectory, but it goes down a lot. That is what being made holy means, right? Here's your uh, Greek translation for the day. Being made holy means this squiggly line, right? (laughs) That's what that means. So if that's true, you know where you are? Even when you're down here? Perfect. And that's not even high enough. Already made perfect. Meaning you can't mess it up. That is a boldness that we can live into. We can live into that boldness. Now, that's not a boldness to sin more. It's a boldness to be free of sin and shame. It's a boldness to be free of condemnation and free to love. This also means that we willingly join in the kingdom of the priest king. When you go to war, your people serve you willingly. Now, 
What's really important about this is we need to understand what does this mean for the priest king to go to war? Well, we talked about this a lot when we were in the book of Revelation, but in Ephesians 6 says this, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. If anyone tries to make an argument that following the priest king means you have enemies who are flesh and blood that we need to fight against physically, they are abusing the scriptures. That's not how it works. The priest king went victoriously by dying. Remember, in Revelation, all those battles, all the, that time that we spent in the book of Revelation, we talked about all those battles and there was some super freaky things, right, and all this stuff. And sometimes people get really excited about those things and they're like, hey, we're going to be on a white horse with Jesus. Like, why not just go attack our enemies right now on a white horse? There's been arguments made throughout church history. We don't want to do that. Why? Because when we look at those battles, there's zero fighting. They're struck down by the sword coming out of Jesus' mouth, which is the word of God. The whole point is upending the system of Babylon, the system of violence and oppression. So going to war willingly with the priest king is going to our death, not anyone else's. It's going and following the lamb wherever he goes. Revelation 12 11, and they have defeated him, being Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and by their testimony. And they did not love their lives so much that they were afraid to die. So now we join in with Jesus, our priest king, in offering ourselves willingly to the world. So we submit to Jesus as our authority. That's how we join in. We join in this kingdom by submitting to Jesus as our authority, our ruler, our king. He's our priest king, yes, but no less our king. What he says, we have to follow. We submit to the lordship of Jesus. He rules us collectively as a church. This is who we submit to. You don't submit to me and the elders, ultimately. You submit to Jesus because he's the priest king. He's Lord. He's the one. We are all submitting to Jesus. And in our individual lives, we submit ourselves to Jesus. What he says, we follow. Jesus is the priest king, not either the priest or the king. He's both. You cannot have Jesus and not take both. Which means we have to be willing to sacrifice our agenda for his. It means that our story is wrapped up in his story means that he is our Messiah, our Christ. It means that we need to learn to direct our wills, our emotions, our mind, our affections, as we've been talking about, to the things of Jesus in all areas of life, whether we eat or drink to the glory of God. It means we need to learn to love the king, to love our neighbors, to love our enemies, to love the king's law by loving God and neighbor through sacrifice, not violence or force. It means we need to learn to submit to his word in every area of our lives, not just the ones that we find personally easy to follow. 
but to every area because he's the king. He gets to speak to all of it. And it ultimately means we get to worship this priest king. Because back to Jesus' first question, why should we submit to authority in him? Why can David, what, what does David mean when he says, the Lord said to my Lord? Because Jesus is not just a human priest king. He is fully human, yes, and fully God. And so we submit to him in worship because he is God in the flesh. We get to worship this priest, King Jesus. So let's submit our lives, City Hope, to Jesus, our good and faithful priest king. Let's pray together. Jesus, we come to you and we come boldly into the throne room. Not because we're worthy. Lord, we're in fact unworthy. And likely all of us are thinking about some way in which we are unworthy for your kingdom. And yet, Lord, you forgive and love. You offer forgiveness. You offer yourself to us. Help us to know that we are clothed in your righteousness, Jesus. That we are loved by you so that we could come boldly into your throne room for help in time of need, for grace and mercy and forgiveness, and for love. Jesus, would you come and be Lord over this church, that we would submit ourselves to you and follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Jesus, do this now and receive our worship, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.